And I'm Allie. And it's about time for true crime. Hey. Hi. How are you? Oh, just fabulous. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday, indeed. It's my favorite day of the week. It Um, is. Yeah, because we get to do this. I know. And also, y'all get to hear this, which Heck means yeah. y'all tell us about this, which is like my favorite topic. So it, It's true. Yeah. It's true. I try to tone it down, but I'm like, I love this. <laughs> um, If we could live and breathe true crime more, we would. Absolutely. I would love to get to a point where this was like a full-time job, if I know. possible. We already have, we're educated in it. We work in the field. Can we, let's, I just want to talk about it. Yeah, let me talk. I just want to talk about let it. Let me chit chat. I love to hear myself talk. I know that people always say Who that like, it's a bad coffee? thing. Who wants to grab Let's get a little martini. Let's talk about yeah, it. Yeah, let's. The thing that I really like about true crime is like, it honors something real that happened. You give respect and your time to these victims that had to go through all this shit. But also, when done right, it can help you sort of understand what you might do in that scenario. And that helps my anxiety lizard brain feel more prepared. For sure. But also, when you're doing it with someone else who's into it, it can borderline like bonding. It's like a casual conversation where you're like connecting over this fucked up shit that happens. And I just love it. I would do it all the time if I could. Well, yeah. And I think exactly what you're saying is what what would i do in this situation how can we be best prepared what what didn't they know what did they know what did they try to do what what can we learn right. because like we've said before we are the share your location friends <laughs> we are the give me the first last and if you can get me the maiden name of the person you're going on a date with i will see yep. what i can find i i'm going to this restaurant at this time and if you don't hear from me by this time you know Send a search party, check my location. If I'm on my way home, it's okay. (laughs) Like ring the bells. Like that's all, you know what I mean? And leave your fingerprints in an Uber and leave a piece of hair behind Mm -hmm. and all of these things because shit happens. Yeah. Bad people are out there and not everyone's bad and not everyone's going to hurt you, but it also isn't going to be the ghoul in the alleyway. Yeah. And I'm not going to sit here and watch people go through countless and countless tragedies time and time again for them to not get the recognition that they had to go through that shit but also for us to not learn from it because i feel like history is two-sided if you don't learn from it it repeats and sometimes it repeats anyway like you can't control other people but all you can do is control what you do and try to be prepared for what others might do that's all you can do right and if that person had to give their fucking life for someone else to be a dickwad Yeah, I want to turn something good out of that. I want to find a way for that to have meaning and purpose long term because what happened didn't, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. No, but I would do this all day long if I could. If you guys like listening to us talk, you could help us by like following and reviewing and all that. But rating, reviewing, downloading, telling a friend, telling a family member, listening to it in the car. Listen to it in the shower, you dog. To the pod, we have our PayPal and our Venmo that's always open. Um, you can get some merch, some stickers. You can just send us an email. We love that too. Anything that is, you want. Moral support is so important. We love all the reviews. We love all the emails. We would just sit and chat with you guys all day if we could, honestly. We really would. But I think this is actually, I mean, I know this is kind of quick, but it's kind of a good intro into this week's case. Hit me. What are we talking about today? So for those of you who clicked on it, you know that we're talking about Tim Bosma. Okay, I did not know that. Well, 
welcome to the club thank you, know, you. Know. you guys let me sit at the table but um i don't think anybody knows what's in store for this this is okay. one of those cases that every layer of this onion you peel back just reveals more shit onion oh. um but it's fascinating because of all of the twists and turns that these layers reveal so i will kind of want to get into it Ooh. so hi hello howdy all you cool, cool pod pod party people. How you doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, welcome or welcome back to your favorite podcast about time for crime. That's hey. so sweet of you. And today I wanted to get to kind of a weird crime. And this one's pretty fucking weird. It's like a little bizarre, a little, <laughs> are you sure? And a lot of what the fuck. I wanted to take this time to offer up a big old trigger warning. It's going to be kind of graphic, kind of tough on a sensitive stomach. And we will talk about suicide a little bit later on. I'll give you another trigger warning right before that. But right. it's kind of what we're in for. Today's case involves a millionaire, a normal middle class guy. Okay. A cute little family, a beautiful girl, some weird farm equipment, and okay. aviation. I did not have this on my bingo card. Okay, right? let's yeah. go. All <laughs> right. a lot of things. Um, and not super connected. So where we start is not at all where we end up. But if you want to hear about how a truck helped find a missing girl and how a child pilot crash landed his entire life, stay tuned. Okay. All right. So, of course, since I like to remind you all that we do our research and we take it seriously, please look below for all the resources. Notable standout sources for this case include Morbid's episode 424 on this case mysterious five true crime and i also used cbc and a lot of bbc because this happened in canada so Mm. all of my little news sources are for the canada broadcasts but i will always supplement with as many news sources as i can and obviously i'd recommend any of these well-crafted accounts of this case so check them out but we are currently traveling to ancaster canada in the year of like 2012 Okay, so we're more recent than I was thinking. Roar by Katy Perry. Okay. Um, Probably Ugg boots with leggings with like a denim skirt over those. Although that might be a little too early 2000s for this time period. Is it like the furry Uggs? Yeah. That go like halfway up your leg. Yep. I know the type. I didn't own those. Um, I always had the, I think they were bear paw ones. I don't know. Whatever's cheaper than freaking hugs <laughs> i loved good. my bear paws they're so good they're comfy but um yeah i think this time we're again sort of in that like charlotte Roos and forever 21 are like the most popular places at the mall like oh, this yeah. whole vibe instagram is just becoming like a big thing it was still um, that like ugly brownish looking one yeah you know where one. you'd post pictures of your food from like a weird angle and you'd be like made an enchilada for dinner like <laughs> and then put sepia over it and you were like I'm yeah and you were like editor. valencia darling <laughs> yes this um, is photography baby so this is the time period we're in we're in ancaster canada and our case actually doesn't start in any one place but on the interwebs as so many stories do okay tim bosma a young dad of 32 had a truck that was a pain in his ass. Sorry for saying ass. No, um, you're not. He had, <laughs> no, I'm not, but. I'm taking the dog. I'm taking du- the dog. Dumbass. The pain in his ass. And so <laughs> he had been eyeing a cheaper one that ideally was like less maintenance and less hassle, but mm-hmm. 
you know, he wanted to do the smart thing, sell this one before he bought the new one and, you know, get one problem off of his hands and use it to fix another. All right. I like it. So he wanted to sell it. And his wife, Charlene, helped him post an ad for the truck on a resale shop online. Now, I don't know if this is like the Canada equivalent of eBay or Craigslist. It sounds like it, but it's called Kijiji. I like that so much more. Right. Um, And this is where they first posted. So Tim and Charlene were new homeowners. Um, They had a fresh two-year-old baby daughter who they loved very much. Mm. Tell me she's okay. Is she okay? Yeah, she's okay. okay. She's actually not a huge part of the story. She is part of the story, but I'm not going to name her in the vein that we like to do where we let the kiddos have a life. Mm -hmm. I'd like that for her. So as far as we need to know, she is just his two-year-old daughter. Oh, God. She's still a kid now, too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So... They thought it was a shrewd move, obviously, to get a smaller, more economic car. And while initially the first posting on Kijiji didn't get a lot of traction, the couple did decide to eventually add another listing on a separate site. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm assuming this was the 2012 equivalent of like Facebook Marketplace for the second location, you know? I hear you. However, a few days came and went and neither of the ads ended up getting much traction. Tim was getting frustrated and fed up because obviously he already was frustrated with the car and now nobody wants to buy it. And it's just a whole pain in his ass. Mm-hmm. Um, he was getting to the point where he was like, I might as well just fucking go to a dealer and see what I can get for it. Right. Like, but then a message came in from a potential buyer and it's the only one he's gotten. They lived a ways away, close to Ontario, I think. It sounded like a solid hour or two drive. But wanted to come see the truck. So Tim got to work. He cleaned it. He detailed the interior. He made it look beautiful, like wiped down the little rear view mirrors and all of that so that it was just like as close to a pristine truck as these buyers could see. Which I think, you know, that's a smart move. Yeah, that's what you do. Um, And also like just shows the character of Tim. Like he will do whatever he can to do this thing to the best of his abilities, you know? So... On May 6th, 2013, Tim hadn't heard back from the potential buyers. He sent a message saying, like, good morning. I'm working in Hamilton if you want to meet, but I'll be home about seven if that sounds good, too. Because it sounds like they were going to meet up around this day, but then it went silent. Mm -hmm. And the day came and the day went and the afternoon came and the afternoon went and the evening came and the evening went. And he was like all right at at dinner time he was like i'm calling i don't think they're coming yeah but by 7 30 a half hour after the latest potential meeting time the buyer was like hey actually i'm still very much interested i can be there within the hour bitch but the guy did not show up within the hour in fact it took him until a little after 9 p.m to come weirder still uh, there were two of them and they made it on foot. Which like an mm. hour to a two hour long drive and you show up on foot. So either you're taking public trains and walking here, which is fine. But then like tell him because I don't know what public trains runs at 9 p.m. to go an hour and a half. But also just fishy, 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 weird. Fishy, fishy. You know what I mean? Not what he thought. So Charlene thought it was weird that they were on foot but you know tim was like all right i'll see it through they they showed up and i really want this truck gone <laughs> like i just need it gone um 
So around 9.30 p.m., Tim Bosma left his home with two men who wanted to test drive his truck. Oh, no. As Tim walked out the door, he told his wife Charlene he'd be right back. No. And I'm assuming gave her a hug and a kiss, but it's confirmed he at least gave her a smile and walked out the door. But this was the last time anyone would ever see Tim Bosma. Oh, no. So when Tim didn't come back home after an hour, Charlene started getting worried. And Charlene tried to comfort herself by reminding herself how capable and competent Tim was. He was like a big guy. He was, you know, just tall and built enough that he could hold his own. But he was also a really kind guy. So he wouldn't like push anybody's buttons. It's not a fair fight. There's two of them. There's one of him. And also Tim owned and ran his own HVAC business. So he was in and out of strangers homes constantly and had no problem being assertive when he needed to to make sure he was okay. So Charlene was like, okay, all right. He's okay. It's okay. But as the hours came and went, and we went from one hour to two hours, and two hours to three hours, and it's midnight, Charlene's basically losing her shit. And like I would too. Who isn't? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's awful. She reported Tim missing to the Hamilton Police Department immediately, which is awesome. Like (laughs) that is a quick turnaround. And the next morning at 8 a.m., it was said basically on a press conference from the police that Tim had gone missing the night before and they gave his appearance. They asked if anyone with info could contact them. However, this statement entirely omitted the test drive and two men he was with. And this was on purpose. It was to keep the two men with him from thinking that the police are on to them. But obviously they didn't mention any of that when they said initially like he hadn't been seen since last night. Keep an eye out. As the police began to look into it, though, usually the first place that they start is making sure it wasn't someone running away. (laughs) I mean, he's an adult. That was his right if he so chose to do so. However, by all accounts, Tim and Charlene were doing well. They both seemed happy. They were in a stable relationship and excited to be growing their family. They just were able to afford a new home. So that was an exciting thing for them. And like, Yeah, the truck was a bit of a burden and they said it was expensive and kind of like a financial issue. There were no indications that it was having profound effects on their circumstances yet. Mm -hmm. They were just like, oh, yeah, this is expensive. We don't want to deal with this. Plus, I mean, Tim had his own business that was going well. And so like, he was doing okay. I think it's important to remind people That there is a process. And when the police do have to like rule out them doing this of their own accord, it's not because they don't believe the victim saying that this person is missing. But there's a list, you know, and they have to make sure. Because what if they go through this whole investigation? He was like, yeah, I just pieced out to like the keys for a weekend. (laughs) Right. And they also have to be careful that people have rights. And he, even though you disagree with it or whatever it might be that he wants to leave, he can. And this is a great example of how when a victim's family works with the police, it just gets done so fast. There was no evidence that Tim wanted to leave. None. And they were able to find that out probably within hours by just asking the right questions and having people cooperate. But anyway, it was quick for them to cross off, but they sure crossed it off the list fast. In the next few days, there became posts on Facebook and Facebook as always, I had more details than necessary. People who knew and loved Tim made a post or a few posts between Facebook and Twitter that raised awareness and alerted people of his disappearance. 
Um, however, it also included the truck and the two men that went with him, which pretty <sighs> much would be fine if it stayed a small Facebook or Twitter post between a few friends. But by the end of the first day they were posted, both had been shared thousands of times, even by celebrities. There was no getting out of the press seeing all of this. You know what I mean? And no good deed goes unpunished, right? It's only out of an effort to help law enforcement, to help the investigation, to try to find him. And it just, it doesn't. Because now the two guys that are up to something nefarious know that someone's onto them. Yeah. And now the police have no cards to keep to their chest, right? They've got nothing that isn't shared with yeah. everyone. Everything they know, everyone knows. Uh, so, so much for keeping that secret, you know? <laughs> yeah. Mm. So when Tim had remained missing the morning of May 8th, 2013, this is like two or three days after he'd gone missing. Um, I think she called the first night and they didn't say anything until the second day. And when he remained missing the third day and he had like essentially failed to respond to their like hey tim if you're out there tell your wife you're okay right then they officially deemed him missing and the investigation was on they officially opened up a case of their own on may 8th in 2013 this is the morning that they put on basically their press conference they notified everyone so it was led by sergeant matt cavanaugh or cavanaugh i'm gonna go by cavanaugh but it's C-A-V-E-N-A-U-G-H. He was just the main investigator lead on this case. So Kavanaugh's first press just gave him the description of Tim, the circumstances in which he disappeared, and a description of the two men with him, because obviously that was out there now. The one driving the truck was white in his mid-20s, tall, like six foot, maybe six one, six two, and had light to medium short hair. He was wearing blue jeans and a long-sleeved orange shirt. The second man was also white in his mid-twenties with a smaller build, and he had dark hair, but he kept his hoodie over his head pretty much as much as possible. There was also a potential there may have been a third man, but this was mostly speculation because the two men showed up on foot, and people were like, why'd they show up on foot? There's got to be a getaway car. Yeah, there's someone who had to drive them. Right. Right. Okay. But of course, this was conspiracy and they could not confirm anything. So Kavanaugh only confirmed that they were looking for the two men. Any mention of a third man, he was like, maybe, but there's literally no evidence to support that at this time. So initially, the thought was the two men targeted Tim for the truck. However, all relevant agencies saw nothing remotely matching Tim's truck. None of the car dealerships, none of the scrap part garages that you just like sell a piece of shit to. Not that this car was. The truck was a really nice truck. But, you know, if you're just looking for a quick buck, why not? Right. So none of the scrap garages, nothing like that. And it was really frustrating. They were like, what the hell? Police were able to get some phone data from the night and like a few hours after Tim disappeared. But it stopped the next day. So either it died or it was turned off. So May 9th or 10th, Charlene went on TV to urge the captors to bring Tim back. This was a clip from Global News, and literally anytime Charlene speaks, it like bursts my heart into a billion pieces. She is an amazing woman, just first and foremost, but also just incredibly authentic, I think, in the journey she was having and did it gracefully, which is really hard to do. Of course. So... 
she says on this news segment with the police that this is, quote, as you know, I watched my husband, Tim, drive away just after nine o'clock on Monday. He smiled and said he'd be right back. Still under the impression that all of this was just about a truck, Charlene begs the two men to bring him home. It was just a truck, she sniffled. It is just a truck. You don't need him. But I do. And our daughter needs her daddy back. Oh, I'm literally going to cry. But um, she says, so please, please let him come home. And she ends this with like, may God have mercy on you. Like eye contact with the camera. May God have mercy on you. And like, what a chilling first statement to make. Like, that's the first thing she ever fucking said. You don't need him. I need him. And our daughter does. Take the truck. Take whatever. Bring him home. Yeah, that's it. Um, and again, this made me cry when I wrote it. Of course, it's going to make me tear up a little now. But Charlene is just absolutely amazing. And I get it. The fact that she can muster up the strength not only to keep going, not only to help her daughter and her nieces and nephews, which one of which said that Uncle Timmy has been stolen, which is just heartbreaking. Oh, come on. But for her to do all of that and then get up on TV and not only beg for her husband, but contextualize it and basically say, fuck off with the truck, whatever. Give me my husband back. Mm. It's amazing. Uh, She's an inspiration of a woman. And I know that it's so easy to call someone strong, even though usually in a scenario where you're calling someone strong, there's not really an alternate option for them. Yeah. Like it's survival. And that's what's strong. You don't have a choice. And so I want to recognize that, you know, she did this out of survival necessity necessity but it does not negate the fact that she is incredibly strong and resilience she is literally the poster child for resilience so later that same day everyone's hopes fell when the police found tim's cell phone the cell phone was in an industrial area about 20 minutes away from the bosma's home and according to kavanaugh the truck was spotted driving downtown brantford which for those of you in Canada, I think is another suburb of Canada, like around Ontario or Toronto, Mm -hmm. one of the two. That's kind of like the two major cities that all of this happens around. Mm -hmm. But it was found like randomly outside in this industrial park, basically. And according to Kavanaugh, again, when the truck was spotted, it was in downtown Brantford at like 10, 10 p.m. the night of the disappearance. So Kavanaugh on TV asked like all of the businesses in the area to search their cameras for anything they could use. Like, did you see it driving? Did it stop? What was going on? And basically his whole hope for this was just to make sure that if there was a route they could track down, that they could narrow down the route that the truck took, you know? Right. So another decent update that they found this day, though, was that the investigators were able to get more details on the other cell phone that was messaging about the truck. So not Tim's cell phone, but whoever the potential buyer was, they were able to track down that IP address and learn about that cell phone. And they found that many of the messages were sent from a potential buyer in like multiple places in Etobicoke. I don't know if I'm saying this right. I'm sorry, Canada. If I'm not, I think it's Etobicoke. I'm sorry to all of Canada. (laughs) I am. My apologies. However... It was determined that the phone was a burner phone and it was strictly used for truck stuff. In fact, not only had this phone, which, by the way, had been set up under a fake name of Lucas Bait, which like, 
Bait. Bait. Are you kidding? They weren't. So <laughs> this yeah. phone had been used to message a few people. And I think it might have only been two, but it could have been more than that. And they might have only met up with two people. However, they found that someone else, a man named Igor, had also been selling a truck and that they met up with this other man just a few days before they met up with Tim. Hmm. But when they were able to like reach out to this guy and confirm that this all happened, he was like, oh, yeah, there were two men and he matched the description to what they were looking for. And what was so interesting, um, even better than him matching the definition and confirming that these two men came by, was that he said the taller of the two men had a tattoo that said ambition on his forearm wrist area. Which is just kind of a funny tattoo to me in general. If you have it, that doesn't mean anything about you. But especially the more we learn about this guy, it's just like a fucking oxymoron. Yeah. You know? But anyway, so the Hamilton PD continually progressed their investigation, but they did an amazing job of keeping the public informed with whatever they could and whatever they did know and could share. So it's worth noting that this case got messy because of this and not because the Hamilton PD was so good at communication, but of our, you know, maybe some people cut from the same cloth. The online web sleuths really dug their nose into this one. And listen, I'm all for web sleuths. I am a a truth girly. I want to know what actually happened in any case. Um. But I also think there's a way to respectfully do that while allowing law enforcement to do their job. Yeah. And there is a difference between a true crime fan and someone who gets too involved in an investigation. These were the latter of the two. Um, But what is worth noting and the part that was absolutely not helpful with this is that pretty much the second this hit the news, everyone was like, well, he obviously knew them. He must not be as innocent as he sounds, because why would Tim get in a car with two people he doesn't know? And it's like, he's selling his fucking truck. They're going for a test drive. What do you think? Like, yeah, they're not saying free candy and like luring the door open, you know? And so this was super unhelpful because they basically went and did a deep dive into every part of Charlene and Tim's life and Mm -hmm. looked for any evidence of wrongdoing and used that to say... Yeah, they're lying to you. This wasn't an accident. In 2010, he told his mom he was going here and he went there. Like, assholes. That's not an exact example, but it's that kind of minuscule thing that they're holding on to. And so I'm not going to mention a whole lot on this, but they literally helped nothing and they just halted a lot of things and made Charlene basically her life a living hell for the time that this was going on. Yeah, She's going through enough and then you add some kind of social media element of it where people are like attacking and berating your family for what? Yeah. Just so that they can feel better about a random incident of evil. Like go back to your basement. I don't. Thank you. So continuing on. On Saturday, May 11th, another press conference was held from the Hamilton PD. They were able to say arrests had finally been made in the case of Tim Bosma. And. To be fair, finally might not be the right word because this was five days after Tim went missing. So this was pretty fast. But they had been able to follow up on tips they received the day prior that a man named Dellen Millard matched the description of the suspect down to the ambition tattoo. 
However, he also lived right by one of the cell towers that the burner phone kept pinging off of. That'll do it. So it was like, "Mm -hmm, okay, (laughs) we'll take a look at you. And when they did, 27-year-old Dellen Millard was pulled over in Mississauga by Ontario Providential Police. He was, quote-unquote, detained without incident on the morning of May 10th. He had been charged with forcible containment and theft over $5,000. And the police department was happy to say that they made an arrest, but they were very quick to make sure it was known that they still had their top priority bringing Tim home alive. And also, Dellen was only one of the two suspects, so their case was still very much ongoing. Okay. Not to mention, in the words of Charlene, it's just a fucking truck. (laughs) Bring Tim home. That's what we care about. But we're going to put a little pin there and we're going to talk about Dellen. Okay. Dellen, D-E-L-L-E-N, Millard. We're going to talk about Dellen from his birth to Tim's disappearance. So who is Dellen Millard? Who is he? Great question. Thank you. It seemed odd that a 27-year-old man with which we'll find out to be an exceeding amount of money, was involved with a potential homicide investigation. Mm. Especially when you hear more. So he went by Dell most of the time. That's what I'll say, because honestly, Dellen is kind of a tough name to naturally flow off the tongue. I just keep thinking you mean Dylan. Same. That's what I thought it was for a long time. Um, Because normally when I look up cases that I want to do, I watch like a documentary on them first. Mm Mm-hmm. And all of the captions said Dylan, because that's what it assumes you mean when you say Dylan. Right. Anyway, Dell, which is what I'll call him, (laughs) was the heir to the Millard Air Fortune. His grandfather had started this commercial airline company. And the airline, of course, mostly catered to wealthy people in Canada (laughs) who could go around. Owning an airline company? Yeah. Yeah, that'll do it. That's not your average Joe. And what's fascinating here is that in 1999, at just 14 years old, Dell actually made a world record. He was the youngest person ever to fly a helicopter and a fixed wing plane solo in one day. At 14. Jeez. Like, he was a freaking aviation child prodigy. Like, how was he in the middle of all this shit? But by the time that he reached adulthood, Millard Air built hangars and technology, but they had moved away from commercial flights. Mostly after Dell's grandfather, Carl, died in 2006. Dell's father, Wayne, took over Millard Air until 2012, when, unfortunately, uh, Wayne took his own life. Mm. So in 2012, that's when Dell took over Millard Air. However, it wasn't going well. He was doing major cutbacks and layoffs when he was arrested in May of 2013. So obviously his business was not going as he would have hoped, presumably. Yes. As a child, Dell was described as precocious and spoiled, even a little mischievous. And I think we all know a little boy who like gets into trouble and is like, it wasn't me. Yeah. The problem is when dad... And the family fortune comes to bill you out every time. There's not really any consequences learned from that, Mm -hmm. you know? And with most kids, you grow out of it. But it sounds like Dell got into trouble a lot. He loved being wealthy. He loved being the center of attention. Damn it, Dell. Dell. (laughs) 
He had tons of parties at the hangars where he kept all of the expensive cars and helicopters that they owned pretty much so that he could show off all the expensive cars and helicopters. Of and course, that you they know owned. those parties were ragers. Too. Oh, yeah. And when Dell got engaged to one of his girlfriends, their engagement shoot was all of his classic planes and helicopters in the background. Like they did like a different one with like each of the, I don't know, vehicles, my, automobiles, my God, planes. Um, in fact, it also included a quote unquote variety of hairstyles and at least six different outfits. These bitches be extra. <laughs> what? <laughs> They're like, you know, what if we spent an entire week just taking pictures of us with planes and we were like, we're engaged. <laughs> and then we change our clothes and we change our hair and, and we, we change everything. Who has time for that? Millionaires, I guess. We've been engaged over a year and I can't even. We have taken not one picture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it does seem like for as far as into appearances as Dell was, it was really only ever appearances and not really anything deeper than surface level. Mm. Not long after they got engaged, Dell was caught cheating with an 18 year old. How old was he? Yeah, he was in his early 20s. Um, so Jennifer, his fiance, peaced out. Good for you, Jennifer. Good job, Jennifer. Um. And for most of his early life, Dell just like fucking floated along. But with everything, it wasn't just, you know, girls and what am I going to do with my life? Everything that he wanted to do, he didn't follow through on. He tried a variety of different careers. He tried culinary school, special effects makeup school, 3D game design and photography, and he quit all of them. I mean, why does he even need to worry about being good at anything? He's just going to have everything. Well, yeah, but I mean, you at least have to buy your time and like sit through some classes and pay off a teacher. But he's just had (laughs) everything given to him. Yep. And it's gotten off scot-free. So it's like, yeah, if you start something and want to give up, he can just give up. He has that option. And I think what frustrates me so much about this is that his dad was so fucking supportive of anything that Dell wanted to do. His dad said, oh, my God, you want to go to school for special effects makeup? Let's do it. Let's go. Let's support that dream. He was really in his corner. Yeah. He said, whatever you want to do, even though Wayne really wanted Dell to take over Millard Air, he was like, I want you to be happy more than I want that. So let's set you up. And Mm -hmm. Dell just pissed it away. And like the only thing that Dell didn't quit at doing was spending money. He just loved to spend money. And apparently just being an ass. Yeah, well, that too. Um, so Wayne supported Dell until the day he passed in 2012. And while he hoped that Dell would take over, I know it didn't happen the way that he hoped it would. Dell pretty much would undo anything that was done to create a professional career for him. During these attempts, Dell botched the airline certification process on multiple t- occasions. Um, and also... During one of the, like, I think you have to do tests to fly for commercial airlines. Mm -hmm. So during some of these, and I don't know if this was including his commercial airline, like if this is a standard test that everyone has to do or if he was applying somewhere, but he didn't want to make adjustments because he didn't want to spend money. And by not making the adjustments that he needed to make to the hangar, he damaged the property so bad that they actually lost like tenfold what it would have been for him to just do the stupid fucking maintenance that he needed Jeez. to. 
So he liked to piss on opportunities, seemingly. Um, and Dell, the kid who was an aviation prodigy at 14, would rather do that than actually, I don't know, see what he was capable of, push himself to grow, yeah, be a person with goals and dreams and anything. Anything. Just, anything. Just anything. But... None of that mattered when in 2012, Wayne shot himself, dying by suicide. So fast forward to the case at hand. On May 12th, 2013, the Hamilton PD started searching Dell's mother's house. Dell's mom's name was Madeline Burns, but I'm mostly going to call her Dell's mom. Okay. Um, actually, if I'm being honest, I'm mostly going to call her Dell's mommy, but um, <laughs> she is <laughs> Dell's mother. <laughs> this is in Kleinberg. Canada, which is like 45 minutes outside of Toronto. Uh, they didn't find anything inside of the home, which is great. Fine, even. Um, but what they did find was a big trailer. And this they searched. But do you want to guess what was in it? Oh, you're going to tell me. Tim Bosma's truck. Oh, was shit. Was just in the fucking trailer outside of his mom's house. Oh, shit. Like, this man did not even try to hide it. Oh, Dell's mommy. Oh. Dell's mommy. E. Was like, you can put that trailer here. That's okay. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so initially, the police took the truck to a garage for storage while they worked on the case. Tried to find forensics and all of that shit. But the problem is, the staff kept taking pictures with it and in front of it. So they had to move it. Because this was like a national case. So they all knew that this is Tim Bosma's truck. And they were just taking photos with it? Yes. Like, oh, come ah. on. Yeah. Fuck off. So they had to move it. Oh, Jesus. Um, and at the same time that the authorities were searching Madeline's property, a second team searched Dell's farm in a rural township like 40 minutes from the Bosma house. While they were searching Dell's farm, I, by the way, I looked this up. This man has so many fucking properties. Like, He's the kind of millionaire who's like, yeah, I might as well just buy this district building. Yeah, for funsies. For funsies. For funsies. For the shits of it. This was his farm. Okay. Out of all of them. This is the farm. Um, And while they were searching it, a neighbor actually came out to speak to the investigators. The neighbor was like, yo, on more than one occasion he had seen, and this is a quote, a big redneck smoker in the woods and an excavator in the swamp on Millard's property. There, he led the investigators to a wooded area behind the house on the farm, down an overgrown road, and then they found it. The investigators approached the incinerator first, and slowly, they were worried about what they would find, obviously. Yes. While there wasn't a body in it like they were afraid of, there was ash on the bottom of this empty incinerator. Then they asked the neighbor to take them to the excavator and they stopped halfway to the excavator in the swamp because they found two huge burn spots that looked fresh and freshly cleaned up. Mm, so for I those of you all of this. who don't know what an incinerator is, it's basically meant to. Giant oven. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's meant to cremate large animals. Essentially. And what are humans? Large animals. There you go. Essentially. So they found those two burn spots that looked freshly cleaned up. And then 
they said they could still smell like a bit of accelerant, so probably like gasoline or something from starting the fire. But when they finally got to the swampy area, there was a bobcat and an excavator, an excavator in the swamp. And when we say bobcat, we mean the machine, not a... Yeah, not the animal, like a construction machine. <laughs> but it would be much better to have a cute little bobcat. Yeah. And the excavator seemed recently used. So, in the incinerator, they had forensic investigators come to observe it. And what they did find was bone fragments at the bottom. Oh, no. And they wanted to test these. They also discovered more fragments of bone in a smaller chamber below the big incinerator chamber. So, what I actually love about this case is it's a really great example of how a bunch of different agencies work together. For instance, the police sent out, well, I want to say like pictures and probably a letter to a professor named Tracy Rogers, who was a forensic psychologist. Okay. Tracy felt that the bones were human on appearance, but she did not want to say that without looking at them. She said, I need to see this in person. Yeah, that's responsible. Let me look. Yeah. And so she came in person the next day, <laughs> honestly, with a bunch of students, which is funny. So they were all casing the area. Oh, well. She probably used it as like a great learning opportunity. Like, put your fucking gloves on and listen yeah. to what I say, but let's go. You said you want to do this job. Let's go do the job. Yeah. So they collected some. They tested some. And they also found three partially burned seat belts and random debris. Oh, after the search, they could only find 58 bones, so like a quarter. Okay. And due to the incinerator, the rest had been reduced to ash. Oh, no. So although no conclusive DNA match could be made, I mean, genuinely, it's less than a fourth of the body and it's already been incinerated. Like, right. There's not a lot of integrity to that evidence. Um, she couldn't officially say anything. But with what she did have, Tracy was able to pretty confidently narrow down the age and gender of the person whose bones it was. And those were consistent with Tim Bosma, so a male in his early 30s. And she said she felt confident in saying it was likely the bones of Tim Bosma based off of that information. Later that afternoon, Hamilton PD held a press conference announcing the official death of Tim Bosma. They are convinced by the totality of the evidence that it's the remains of him and that the remains had been burned. His poor wife. Just for us. The day after this happened, Charlene did go on TV again. Oh. She said, and this did break my heart, but she goes, yesterday was the most horrifying day of my life. She goes on to say how people have called her strong, but it's only because of her two-year-old that she quote-unquote can't fall apart. But she followed that with, but I am broken because part of me is gone. Mm. She then thanked the hardworking police at Hamilton PD and said that despite the fact that it's not her desired outcome, she is so grateful for them to finding Tim and actually bringing him home. I'm crying. Um, she deserves the world. But moving on. She could have raised that baby on her own now. Yep. No. Now that it was no longer a missing persons case and could be identified as a homicide investigation, um, police were able to do more and ask more questions. 
But in natural asshole fashion, Dell refused to cooperate. Remember, he'd already been arrested for the theft of the truck. Such an ass. Now they have him for the murder of Tim Bosma. His attorney (laughs) said in a press conference that he was facing some pretty serious charges and wanted to execute his right to remain silent. Okay. And I said, LMAO, does it have anything to do with the incinerator or the excavator or the bone fragments or Tim's truck at your mommy's house? Like, I'd exercise my right to remain silent, too. I think it's secret option E, which is all of the above, (laughs) potentially. In addition to this evidence and the evidence collected at various addresses, detectives started to look into Dell's associates, obviously. And one that was of note was Mark Smitch. I don't like the sound of him. Mark Smitch stuck out for a few reasons. Obviously, Dell had a lot of people that were around him. He was a rich playboy in Canada, basically. He threw parties and everyone wanted to be at his house. Right, exactly. But... Mark Smitch was like the perfect guy to hang out with Dell. He was the kind that just wanted someone to mooch off of, play video games with, and do random delinquent shit with for the sake of feeling something. With the assurance that, of course, Dell's money would get them out of any consequences. Right? It has so far. So Mark Smitch also matched the description of the second man on the truck test. Sure did. So on May 13th, Lead investigator Kavanaugh had investigators start to look into Smitch. By May 22nd, not even 10 days later, an arrest was made. They got everything they needed for a fucking homicide arrest in nine days. What kind of idiot? Anyway, um, what I do love about this, though, is that on May 22nd, both Mark Smitch and his girlfriend Elena were arrested. Oh, um. Mark she, she's Smith. the third. She's the driver. Ooh, Elena. Mark allegedly yelled to his girlfriend, Elena. Don't tell them anything, babe. Don't tell them anything. Oh, dude. <laughs> dude. You know what? I I don't think she's going to tell us anything. But that told us a lot. But that. But Mark, man. You said so much. So um, unfortunately, to bust your theory, Elena was let go. They had nothing really on her. Fuck. Um, but <laughs> it also took a lot of people by surprise because the public didn't know they'd even identified the counterpart, let alone were ready to make an arrest. You know what I mean? Surprise, bitch. Mark Smitch had been known to police for a while. He had a history of petty crime and he owned a blue SUV that, you know, just so coincidentally matched the one trailing Tim Bosma's truck past that industrial yard. Makes sense. Somehow. I mean, it's weird, but I guess. Um, And people were also incredibly confused about Mark Smitch because it's the first he's coming up. He also seemed like a normal guy, which meant to them he didn't seem like a good match for Dell to be hanging out with. They're like, why is this normal, seemingly kind of lazy, like middle class man hanging out with a millionaire? Like, what is that match about? What, What did they have in common? Right. But Mark was just a regular guy. A little bit about his history. Mark was born in Mississauga and his entire family had to relocate because of Mark in middle school. Oh. The move was in hopes of quote unquote sorting Mark out. But it seems like that didn't help because in high school, Mark was getting into trouble frequently before dropping out fully as a sophomore. 
He didn't even make it to junior year. Then, much like our guy Dell, he drifted around from job to job, not sure what he wanted, really. And by his early 20s, Mark had become a small-time drug dealer. Nice, 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 nice. Um, but see, the thing is, he wasn't really the best at business ventures. He didn't really like have a mind for marketing or anything like that. So when he had no supply, he just kind of took to selling single cigarettes to kids at the high school. You didn't do that, too? Um, even the high schoolers said they thought he was creepy. Oh, jeez. What a little sad guy. You want a cigarette? Two bucks. Jesus. I ran out of the weed. That's what I got. Oh, my God. So Mark and Dell met in 2008 when Mark was doing one of his stupid little jobs at a garage nearby. And the garage nearby, from what I understand, was actually a scrap garage that Dell hung out at a lot. Okay. But by 2010, 2011, they actually had become good friends. It sounded like part of their relationship was this drug dealing, but I think Dell was actually Mark's supplier for when Mark would go and sell, but Dell didn't have a consistent supply. So mm-hmm. that's why Mark not would be out helpful. of it. Right. Yeah. But they were pretty good friends by 2010, 2011, and it was around then that they started to like play video games and get high together and like go do fun random shit because they have all the time in the world because Dell's a fucking millionaire by doing nothing. Um but they would just hang out, and it was around 2011 that Mark and Dell and some of their friends started doing what they'd call, and this is a heavy quotation, missions. <laughs> you want to know what a mission is? Yes, please. Uh, a mission is really just like a fucking impulse theft for them. They'd be like, oh, I dare you to go steal that, and that was their mission. Jeez. Um, so these missions included stealing cars. They stole trees. Trees, like from the ground. Just, oh, yeah, uh, you're, you're coming with me. <laughs> uh. They even stole a floor polisher from a restaurant just for the fuck of it. Jeez. Like this man could afford anything he wanted 50 times over. And he was like, you know what? Nah, I'll just steal it. So uh, eventually these evolved into more in-depth theft, becoming more thought out plans, which, hey, we love to see growth. But does it have to be here? Oh, no. Um, and they also saw more vandalism happen. But Dell was the leader. And don't get it wrong, he'd pay his friends to help commit crimes. Mm. They weren't just like, buddy, let's go do it. Ah, yeah, Saturday night. He'd be like paying them. Uh, mm. And if having friends has to be on your totally real and certainly a priority for these assholes, taxes, they probably aren't really friends. Uh, Not likely. And I wouldn't be surprised if these dipshits didn't do their taxes. Be good to the IRS. It's the only way they got Al Capone. That's my two cents on that. (laughs) But this is how Dell decided he wanted to steal a truck. He had scoped some out before landing the two that he looked at. The one before Tim's with Igor and, of course, Tim Bosma's. He decided that Mark was his guy. But... Mostly because the rest of Dell's guys were like, yeah, no, Grand Theft Auto is not the same as stealing a tree somehow. It's funny. I thought it was. Yeah. But I guess it's different. So. Oh, okay. But Mark seemed to feel in debt to Dell of some kind. I don't know if this is from a history of generosity from Dell that we never fucking hear about. Um, If this is due to 
drug-related deaths or something like that, or maybe even just having a friend when Mark felt like no one else was his friend. I don't know. But he felt in debt. So on May 4th, the two test drove Igor's truck before Tim's. I guess they decided Igor's didn't have whatever they wanted. And Igor Tomaniko is the guy that the police connected with the cell data who identified the ambition tattoo and identified Mark Smitch as a passenger with Del Millard on his test drive. We love Igor. Mm-hmm. Igor technically had to put out like a statement of facts or something like that. I don't know all of the intricacies of Canada's law system, but I assume this is like putting in a statement for the police in the U.S. Basically, he was just saying, this is what happened. This is what I saw. And I believe this to be fact. And it wasn't until this that he confirmed that Mark Smith did match the other guy that came with Dell. So on May 24th, 2013, Mark and Dell appeared for their first day of court. Baby's first day of court. Isn't that so precious? Oh, well, they were being charged with the first degree murder of Tim Bosma. Oh, so oh. a little less precious. But the two were fucking opposites in the courtroom. Now, something I'd like to start by saying is that I don't actually hold these differences against these men, but I hold them, for lack of a better word, against the way that they were brought up. Entirely different. When Dell was in the courtroom, he was well-dressed, confident, polite. He made eye contact with the judge. He spoke solidly. He said that he was not guilty. And these are all traits of a good businessman. You show up, you dress the part, you act the part. Yeah, he's grown up seeing that every single day. Exactly. And Dell had been trained to learn how to play that role. That was the entire succession of his family. He was to take over an aviation business. He was to learn how to be prominent and efficient and good at all of these things. But this is not how Mark was in court. Hmm. Mark, on the other hand, came in wearing a t-shirt and jeans and sneakers um, <clears throat> for those of you listening and wondering, not appropriate court attire. But not anyway. even a little bit. Please don't wear that if you have to go to court. He also was sporting a black eye, an open cut on his face, and had looked quote unquote gaunt. Oh, like a bar fight the night before. Yeah. He was also so quiet that when he put in his plea of not guilty, the judge could not hear him. Mm. So this doesn't look great. And now I don't blame Mark's upbringing for the level of unkempt here. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I am saying is that Mark didn't have the resources and ability to just go get cleaned up and be taught his entire life how to face challenges like this. How to be polished on the spot. He didn't have that training. And Dell certainly did. Both men were held without bail at different facilities. So pre-trial, they were not allowed out. They weren't even given like the old house arrest thing, which I thought was great. That was good work, in my opinion. And smart to keep them apart. And the discovery that Dell orchestrated everything, allegedly, shocked the public, but nobody else. We're going to get into some of this because Dell has other nefarious missions, quote unquote, that Mm. we'll find out in this period of evidence collecting before the trial. So again, here's that trigger warning on suicide, but Six months before Tim Bosma went, went missing is when Dell's father, Wayne, had shot himself in the head. Hmm. Actually, it seems all the employees were told that he had a brain aneurysm, so they didn't even tell the employees the truth of what happened. Um, but unshockingly and absolutely unhelpfully, 
Wayne's body was cremated at the request of the family. Okay. Isn't that interesting? All right. But what's fascinating here, and especially piqued the interest of the police, was that this kind of unexpected tragedy wasn't isolated in Dell's life. Now, it's more than understandable and reasonable, hopefully not quite probable, but likely that a middle-aged man might follow through with death by suicide. It should be noted from numerous trainings that have taken and trends in suicide prevention that it's shown that men more than women do die by suicide, usually because the means that males take to end their life tend to be more violent and less easily reversed than those that women would take. And also, we know it's significantly less likely for men to ask for help when their mental health gets poor. I can imagine that stigma would add an extra level of deterrence for asking for help if this man is a prominent position in a prominent company. That could probably get used against you pretty fast, just thinking in terms of stigma in that world. But I'm also not so sure that this was a suicide. Oh, no. Because, like I said, Dell did have a pattern in his life. Um, Six seems to be his magic number because six months before Wayne killed himself, Dell's former girlfriend went missing in Toronto. Is that Jennifer? No, this is a different ex. Her name is Laura Babcock, and she went missing at the age of 23. Similarly to Wayne's death, Laura's disappearance also didn't get a lot of attention. Not from the police, not from the media, not from the public. It was in late June of 2012, and Laura just kind of went off the face of the planet. Laura was from a stable family. She had graduated with a degree in English and drama from the University of Toronto. Laura had been described as having a really good setup. She had a loving family, good friends. She's been described as like bubbly and a great friend. Um, But she also had a quote unquote mental health crisis. And this is when things went south for her. See, having mental illness is not a fun feat for anyone. But Laura had spent some time in a psych hospital, I believe, and she got out of it. She graduated okay. But when things started to go south, she had been mixing for funsies drugs with prescription drugs, which is usually a pretty big no-no in general. But in Laura's specific case, it didn't help her symptoms at all. It actually made them significantly worse. So it was really wearing on her family to the point where Laura's parents were kind of like, you kind of need to tighten up or you need to go and not tighten up your mental health. But like she was out till two or three in the morning and not taking accountability for anything. And they were like, listen, we love you, but you can't do this here. Like you can be here and do something better and different or you can be somewhere else and do the same thing. That's fair. Which is fair. I mean, you just can't handle all of that. And it's a lot of pressure for two people, especially if you're constantly worried about someone else's safety and well-being the whole time. Now, police believed she just wandered or ran away. Yeah, you know, she likely. had a mental health crisis. Like, who doesn't? Mm. But Laura's ex-boyfriend had reason to believe this wasn't the case. And this is not Dell. Correct. This ex, his name was Sean Lerner, and he got super worried after she disappeared. He was able to get a hold of a cell phone bill somehow. I don't know how he did this. Like, I, I fucking no clue. But... He was able to get his hands on it, and he got a hold of all of the communication before she disappeared. 
and it was all with Dell Millard. Mm. Isn't that funny? It was texts, it was calls, and it was all Dell. Lerner took this to the Toronto police, and this kind of pisses me off. They told him that he was, quote unquote, playing CSI. If I can, I try not to make it a thing to criticize too much of what I don't understand. I try, at least. But what I can't help but criticize here is that this is a man who's invested in this girl's well-being, bringing to you law enforcement information with the last person she had contact with on a bill that even if you think it's photoshopped or bullshit is corroborate a bowl by the phone company. Like all that takes is one simple check and you know whether or not he's telling the truth. I think if you wanted to really do justice to someone who just went missing, You'd also try to rule this out because if she did run away, if that was her choice, if she left of her own accord, she deserves she deserves to be left alone, which means loose ends like this deserve to be put to rest. Mm -hmm. But that's not what happened. They literally just told him that he was playing CSI and to drop it. Mm. So Sean, bless up for him, although this is not necessarily safe, took it in his own hands and he decided that he was going to talk to Dell. Oh, shit. But. He cared. Yeah, he really did. So Sean went to face Dell himself and Dell was like, oh, yeah, I was talking to Laura. You're totally right. This was late, like July 2012. And Dell said he hadn't seen her or heard from her since they last spoke. But Sean couldn't do much. And now in 2013, the investigators at Hamilton PD were able to get help with Toronto to dig deeper into these relationships with his father and Laura. Funny enough. Mm -hmm. And at first, it seemed like everyone believed that Wayne actually had taken his life. The day after he died, Dell told the public that Wayne had a great sadness. Um, However, when investigators asked employees at the company, uh, they did say that Dell was constantly and continuously talking shit about his father after he died. Like, what an idiot. He put everything into this and I don't even want it. Oh, fuck off. Yeah. On the night of Wayne Millard's death, Dell's alibi was that he was at Mark's house. Obviously, at the time, they believed it to be a suicide, so they didn't really look too far into these alibis. However, now, in 2013, they started to look into it, and when they tried to, like, corroborate the alibi, make sure it checked out, um, you want to know where Dell said he was? Where did he say he, he was? He was at Mark's house. Okay. And Mark said that Dell was at his house. And this was corroborated by cell records until the early morning the day after when he had been to his dad's house, according to the cell towers at least. Mm-hmm. Um, interviews with friends and acquaintances also told detectives that Dell had illegally purchased a gun. Like a few weeks before. And you know what is such a coincidence is actually it's the same one that was used in his dad's suicide. Uh oh. It was a 32 caliber Smith and Wesson. Ooh. Revolver. Okay. And listen, I would consider this to be probable cause as is, but the Hamilton and Toronto PD actually went a step further, which is awesome. And when they forensically tested that gun, you'll never guess what they found. Hit me. You'll never guess. Um, oh, you would? It was Dell's fingerprints all over the handle of the gun. 
Hell yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Get him. Um, this piece of poop shot his own fucking father, shot on his reputation, and made it look like a suicide that was entirely unsubstantiated so that he could piss away the money that someone else made for him. And then shit talk them the day after. I really don't like this guy. I like feel bad for the company Dell because I don't even want to buy a Dell computer anymore. Oh. Anyway. Um, no <laughs> as relation. As far as Laura goes. Yeah, there is no relation. <laughs> as far as Laura goes, when investigators got deeper into her disappearance, they also found that she was working in an escort service around this time. Mm, okay. Along with Dell's girlfriend at the time, Christina. And Dell and Laura had briefly dated, but this was like way back in 2008. So they stayed friends after breaking up. And in 2012, when Dell was dating Christina and Laura was, you know, not kicked out, but essentially left right. home, um, she really needed a place to stay. So she went to Dell and Christina's. And that was actually pretty good. Um, until Laura started spending quality time alone with Dell. That's never a good idea, apparently. And this arrangement went sour. This is, of course, when Dell decided to accidentally continuously um, have sex with Laura while dating Christina and all of them living in the same place. Um, whoops. Solid. Yeah. Uh, but Christina was pissed when she found out, as she has a right to be, since that did not sound like their arrangement, um, and wanted them to stop seeing each other in any capacity, friends or otherwise. Not just in the fuckery department. <laughs> yeah. So what does Dell do? You guessed it. He spilled his plan to Christina now. He said he wanted to hurt Laura. And then he'd make her leave. He oh, said, shit. I will remove her from our lives. Okay. Yeah. What an... Oh. So investigators made three separate thorough searches of the farm after Tim's remains were found. However, they didn't find anything else that could connect the area to Laura's disappearance. Instead, they used cell phone data, testimony, and text messages, along with a plethora of circumstantial evidence. However, bless up, because the investigators weren't willing to let it go, they were able to try Dell for this, too. All right. So, they theorized that Dell and Mark took months to figure out how to get rid of Laura Babcock. They believe that on July 3rd or 4th of 2012, they killed her, killed her, wrapped her in a blue tarp, and put her into Wayne's, Dell's dad, his old van, mm. which they then drove to where Dell had purchased that incinerator. Um, do you want to know when Dell purchased that incinerator? Well, like the day before? July 5th, the day after. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So even though they didn't find physical remains, they did find a photo and a damn convincing photo at that. This photo had been a picture of Dell Millard in which he's seen in a Millard Air hangar standing beside a human-shaped bundle in a blue tarp. Just what, posing for Snapchat? Are you kidding me? Yeah, I guess so. And he sent that to Mark on July 4th. Happy U.S. Independence. This reminds me of when you covered Carrie Farver, where it was like the photo of the severed foot, yeah. even though it it wasn't... I mean, of course, it's proof, but it's a little bit different than that. Yeah. 
you have to take it a step and connect the dots but oh my god it's a photo and how would they have that and why would that be the case if it weren't that someone was murdered and why are they both blue tarps and what's this with getting an incinerator the day after yeah it just doesn't mm -mm. so the actual trials weren't even able to start until february of 2016 awesome it had been three years of investigators just collecting evidence after evidence after evidence. Good. And between Tim Bosma and his truck, connecting them to Dell, connecting them to Mark, connecting them to Dell's father's death, connecting them to Laura's disappearance. This is giving me murder vibes. Yeah. It's just like one thing after a fucking another mm. for these two. So I feel like personally, if they were just looking into Tim Bosma's disappearance it probably wouldn't have taken this long you know right or murder it was not just a disappearance but it probably wouldn't have taken this long but then you triple that and it makes some sense mm. so of course both still pled not guilty they had been held pre-trial so for three years and prosecution was able to come up with a plethora of damning evidence not limited to tim's bone fragments at the scene the truck at dell's mommy's house the cell phone data, the messages, Igor's testimony, the nefarious bullshit they both got caught up in, and the list of fuckery goes on. There was a significant number of texts and messages that pointed towards the two taking some level of accountability for Laura's death as well. Very vague, I assume, but like, yeah, we did it kind of thing. Oof. Now, if you remember, Dell is a millionaire, so he has a damn good lawyer. Um, and now I don't know if Dell helped fund Marks. I assume not um, because both attorneys tactics were he did it and pointed the finger at the other guy. Aww. You know, yeah. they're both like, not me. It was him. Um, basically, they just wanted to get sympathy and get a lesser sentence. And both of them would rather sell the other one out than take accountability for the lost lives of at least two or more confirmed people. You know, for sure. Yep. Um. Mark pointed the finger at Dell, Dell at Mark. Dell and his defense team had basically been marketing his defense. They were on social media. They were releasing press statements. Oh, he was doing on. interviews from in prison, like, or jail. I, d I don't know where Canada holds people pretrial, but incarcerated. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, he's doing interviews about this shit because he's a millionaire. He's probably making a buck, too. Yeah. And... They, <laughs> he did anything he could to evade the spoiled rich kid trope. He's like, who, me? No, never. But he is a spoiled rich kid. So that didn't go super well. He literally went as far as to be like, I shop at Costco. I love a bargain. <laughs> You're also an asshole. So, I'm, I mean, I don't. I'm like, my man, if you're getting a bargain on a yacht, you can still afford a yacht. Like, <laughs> Oh, anyway. Also, everyone loves Costco. Fuck off. Like, <laughs> Also, it doesn't it's not the money piece of it. It's that you're a dick. Yeah. And that you've used the money to get away with the crimes you've committed. It's not having money or not having money. Yeah. I love a cheese platter from Costco. And you know what? I bet you do, too. And you can afford 50 of them and you can afford to steal all of them and pay off all of the fines that it would have. Like, take. But you'd. You'd have the cheese and then kill the worker there. So yeah. don't even like don't. Mm -mm. Del went on to be like, I'm not lavish. Anything that might portray me as being like a rich kid um, is really just because I had to live up to so many expectations. 
I'm just like a down to earth guy. Oh, boo hoo. And if he was guilty of anything, it was for picking up that leech Mark Smitch, a quote unquote petty criminal who dragged him into this tragedy. <clears throat> okay. Mm-hmm. Mark, of course, went the other way to be like, Dell is a rich psychopath and a master manipulator. Mark's attorneys said that Dell gave empty promises and took Mark on a test drive, quote unquote, that he could have never imagined. The press loved this. Dell was like the interest of all of it, obviously, because his story sold papers. Rich kid turned killer psychopath? Or is he just a good guy being dragged down with the rest of us? What a tough world. Sigh. And, of course, Mark was just a poor schmuck who fell for it and went along with it. So, isn't it his fault? You know? Really, at the end of the day? Anyway, they they probably didn't say that. But it sure as shit didn't sell papers like the first story does. So, they don't really care about Mark. Correct. Dell was able to demonstrate his speaking skills, which did help him in his own case. But Mark also helped himself. In the three years that it took to prepare for this trial... Mark had also done his own preparation for this trial. But for him, it was more of like the male murder trial equivalent of like putting perfume on a dead guy, you know? Yeah, that'll do it. But uh, he was no longer a scrawny, gaunt kid who couldn't even say that he was not guilty. He had spent this time gaining some weight, being a little more fit and just seemingly healthier and confident. He grew his hair out to more of a quote unquote acceptable length. Mm-hmm. and presented very well for himself, which is great because I don't think he could have done that three years ago. And even though I think he's a piece of shit, I think you have the right to be able to present yourself how you'd like when possible. And so during the trial, Mark's defense attorney, Thomas Dunkey, worked really hard to show what a sad pawn Mark was, <laughs> which is like kind of a shitty thing for an attorney to have to be like, look at how sad my client is. <laughs> Yeah, but if it saves his life. Right. Oh, and isn't he ugly too? Look at him. But Mark's attorney actually went so ham in his interrogations of both Dell and like other associates they both had that the judge had to be like, can you cool it? Like out of respect (laughs) for the witnesses and the victims, can you take it down a caliber? Call my client an idiot sandwich. (laughs) Do it. (laughs) What are you? (laughs) <laughs> An idiot sandwich. But, however, it did show that Dell was really good at convincing people to do things they might not otherwise do. Be it from charm, wealth, or threats, Dell was persuasive. And this did work out for Mark, though. Dell Millard's character came right the fuck out. Plus, police were asked to testify, and they were all like, yeah, he's a narcissist. Yeah, he's a dick. Of course. He uses his money to get out of anything, which we've seen time and time again. And we let him. Yay. Woo. So at the same time, Dell's defense attorney, Raven Pillay, petitioned to exclude a considerable amount of evidence. Unfortunately for all of us, this worked and they were able to get a lot excluded. But primarily this evidence included a lot of messages between Dell and friends, mostly about drugs or like anything that would have damaged his character separate from the crimes at hand. Raven Pillay, the defense attorney, pretty much ignored the narcissistic psychopath thing, but did say, like, why would Dell steal a truck? He can literally buy one, like, for fun, tomorrow morning, 
if he wanted to. Why did he steal little shit on his missions? Exactly. It's not because it wasn't a need. Plus, Attorney Pillay said that something had happened and went wrong, which is when Mark produced the gun to kill Tim Bosma. So, like, it's not Dell's fault. It's all Mark. Okay. Tim was just a pawn. That poor family. Wow. I know. I know. Tim. And Tim is, like, the ideal kind of person. He's hardworking. He's loving. He made a place for himself. For it to be taken away by a rich asshole. He could have done whatever the fuck he wanted. Like he. That's. However, um, attorney Pillay also said that the evidence collected, the bone fragments, the history, Dell's mommy's property was actually a vote for Dell's innocence. Uh, Um, After all, wouldn't someone who killed someone at least try to cover up their involvement? Bite me. I literally wrote, like, yeah, if they don't have millions of dollars to get out of it. Seriously. After months of testimony, closing statements started on May 31st, 2016. So this trial took four months. Each closing statement took almost a full day. The jury deliberated then for another four days. By the way, they were sequestered, which I just, it's like my dream to be on a sequestered jury. For a trial like this, <laughs> it's really hard to see other people living your dreams. <laughs> but I just think it was cool. They deliberated for four days and came back with a verdict that both Mark Smith and Dellen Millard were convicted of first degree murder. Hales, yeah. They were automatically sentenced to 25 years to life. That's like a mandatory minimum sen- sentence in Canada. But they were also given all the way up to life. So they could get out after 25 years if they were great up to life or they would always be followed pretty much by probation and parole mm-hmm. um now either way both of them would have to be in prison until 2038 as i'm sure their pre-trial detention gave them some credits you know mm-hmm. but i also just wanted to mention that after this there was another full trial for their involvement in the murder of laura babcock hell yeah in february the year after the crown or prosecution basically still without a body was able to say there was substantial evidence during all of this they found laura's possessions in one of the places dell owned there was also significant circumstantial evidence lots of testimony photos shared between dell and mark of course cell phone data but the defense said there was no body so who's to say laura's dead she could still be alive and that any claims that dell or mark took place took part in any violence was quote unquote the boasting of adolescent drug users what the fuck if i'm like yo man i totally killed her like i took care of her i don't think that's about adolescent drug users i think that's because someone killed someone correct i mean maybe i'm too literal of a person but i just don't think it goes that deep i mean i didn't think so but neither did the jury, because they also found both men guilty of Laura's murder as well. Love okay. it. Okay. And with no body, which is a pretty difficult conviction. That never happens. I know I just did another one where there was a no body conviction, but it really is pretty rare. So Justice Michael Code called Dell, <clears throat> and I think this is great, 
profoundly immoral and dangerous, and that Mark enthusiastically participated. It's true. So both were given another consecutive life sentence, which meant now both of them had to be in prison for 50 years before the option of parole or probation was on the table. Nice. It should be noted that the crowd literally cheered at this. <laughs> Stood up in the courtroom and was like, yeah, woohoo! Hell yeah. Lastly, in 2017, Dell went on a trial alone for the murder of Wayne Millard. In September, Dell was convicted to another life sentence for the murder of his father, which bless up for getting him on all three accounts. He deserves that. So this is a third consecutive life sentence, meaning he wouldn't be up for parole for at least 75 years. We love to see it. Millard's defense attorney called the sentence unreasonably harsh, and Dell said that it was unreasonable and unconstitutional. Bite me, it's not. You killed three people, you can have three life sentences. Correct. Um, but anyway, in 2022, May of 2022, so very recently, the Canadian Supreme Court actually overrode the judge's abilities to give consecutive life sentences, meaning that both Dell and Mark could get out significantly sooner. Dude, what the fuck? For ev- like a sweeping act? Of- oh, Jesus. Yes, I believe so. Come on, Canada. So for those of you who might not be in on it, multiple sentences come in one of two ways. Consecutive, one right after another, or concurrent, meaning both are served at the same time. It's better for the offender if they have concurrent. It's usually better for everyone else if it's consecutive. Desired that it's consecutive from the victim standpoint. Basically, concurrent lets you like double dip on the time spent. So if I had a sentence for seven years and a sentence for three years and I was to serve them concurrently, then I would really only do seven years because the first three would count. For both. For both. Right. Or I would do 10 if I were to serve them consecutively. Right. And so in this case, for Dell, instead of three life sentences being 75 years and then parole, it's now three concurrent sentences, so 25 years and then parole, potentially. And probably, let's be honest, not even 25 years. But let's cross our fingers that everybody else knows what a dickwad he is Mm -hmm. and says, hmm. Actually, no, we're not ready for you to be out in the community yet. So obviously, Mark will get a significantly smaller sentence anyway, because he had one less life sentence on his. But now that that law is overridden, it could be the exact same, which I think is bullshit, personally. Doesn't that just make it like, oh, well, if I can kill one person or 10, why wouldn't I just kill 10? Because my my punishment's going to be the same. Where's my deterrent? No, I'd agree with that. Cool. But what do I know? Cool, 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 I just cool. studied it for six years. So Correct. the other thing I wanted to mention about that is that Charlene Bosma was asked about it when this happened. Mm-hmm. And she said she felt like it took away one of the only comforts she had to hold on to. Oh. She said, I don't want my daughter to have to carry on the same fight at 27 that I thought I already fought for her. Her, her daughter will only be 27 when these two are fucking eligible for parole. And then she'll have to worry about her own kids with them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Jesus. So all in all, these two men were responsible for three murders. Personally, I think Mark should have been included in the trial on Wayne's death because he lied to the police. He misled an investigation. He lied for Dell, saying that he was at his house all night. But regardless, both of them played a part in three separate murders. Not only were these significant roles, but 
Also, two close people and one stranger. Like, what the fuck? That doesn't happen. All of it's needless. So, first and foremost was Laura Babcock, a woman who knew Dell and thought he might be a kind friend when she was in need. After struggling with mental health and eventually having to go out on her own, she eventually participated in an escort service. Although it's unclear to me at this time if that was a sex work position technically or not, and it's also unclear to me as to whether or not she did it out of desire or need. I don't know. But what is abundantly clear is how big of a pile of shit she accidentally stepped in when resuming a sexual relationship with Del Millard, who <laughs> promised to hurt her and remove her from his life, pile, which he then did. Pile of shit she accidentally stepped in. It's true. Keep going. With, by the way, an ex-girlfriend that isn't even the ex he got engaged to. Jesus Christ. Laura is remembered in many ways. First, it's important to note that Laura's case has, like many others, ran her family into some walls that have propelled them into making some change. Which, we love to see change from a tragedy, but we hate to see the tragedy that propels change. Mm -hmm. There are now efforts in Canada to help victims of murder where no body is found to still be able to be declared dead. Due to the fact that there was no body in Laura's case, Laura was unable to get a death certificate. Mm. Due to this, her family has hit a lot of walls in processing her death and moving forward. If you can't get a death certificate, there's a lot of things you can't do. Yeah, because then they're not legally dead. There's right. everything still on the table. And so the process that her family and a lot of those involved in her court process are trying to see is that they're trying to pass a law or a policy in which... If a victim is declared dead and a murder trial has a party found guilty, that you can issue a death certificate without a body. I think that's more than fair. I think that only makes sense. I, uh, so I hate to see that it's taken this long for Canada to get there, but I really hope that Canada does. It, that sounds very important for the remaining victims of this crime. However... I also wanted to remember how sweet of a girl Laura was and end our time with her on a very, like, a very positive note. Laura was a sweet girl. She had her degree in English and drama, and she was looking forward to her life. She hoped to create a school where she could teach people to dance and act. Laura's been described as fun and full of whimsy. She loved 70s rock and fun TV shows like Say Yes to the Dress. Been there. Laura has been described as bubbly, outgoing, amazing, and not afraid to ask for help. She deserves to be remembered for her light and not the darkness that these two bumbling fucking buffoons overshadowed her life with. As far as Wayne Millard, he was a kind man. From all accounts that I can find, he was a dedicated worker who had dreams of continuing his father's dreams. He had an endless patience with and faith in his son, who constantly shat on that. Wayne was seemingly happy in general, but even just weeks before his death. Wayne deserved a better investigation, absolutely. Don't get me wrong. And make no mistake, Toronto PD did come into some scrutiny for this. As, you know, if they had looked deeper into either Laura's or Wayne's death, we might have been able to prevent Tim Bosma's fate that day in May. Mm. But out of all of that, Wayne Millard really deserved a better fucking son. It's not the police's fault that his son killed him in his sleep. It is not the police's fault that his son then spread rumors of what the death nature was and then cremated his body. And it is not the police's fault that he continued to do it two more times. 
I also wanted to remember Tim Bosma, a man who loved his family, who had a passion and a joy for the people he made a family with. He loved his daughter. He loved his wife. And I can't say he loved his job. I don't have anything corroborating that. But given that his HVAC business was his own business and going well, I assume there was a certain degree of satisfaction there, yeah. you know, and at least passion. Tim had been a dedicated family man known for his love of life, his goofy jokes, and even his nieces and nephews were like, that's goofy Uncle Timmy. They made memories at his house with his family, sisters, brothers, nieces, nephews, moms and dads and his wife and daughter. And all he wanted to do was make a smart choice to continue the bliss he had in his loving bubble. The only mistake he made was not having the ability to know that these assholes were up to something bad. But I don't think anyone could know that. Lastly, in remembering Tim, I wanted to add a little bit about life after loss. Charlene Bosma says that she feels like a weight is lifted. The day that those two men were found guilty in court, she said they went out for drinks and it was like having a high five with Tim in heaven. Mm. She is a profoundly spiritual woman and she uses her faith to get through a lot of this. She plans on spending quality time with her daughter, doing some gardening and quote unquote, not going back to court after this. Mm. She says she wants to be boring. Charlene also says that it's a matter of faith, good support, grief work and counseling and trying to bring herself back to a better place that got her through it all and is what makes her feel like she can still be a great mom to her child. Mm. Charlene remembers Tim as a good person. She says in interviews she knows where he is in heaven and she prays and talks to him, but that she knows that even though there's evil in this world, it is not a reflection on him. And that is the case of Tim Bosma's truck. Wow. And it all started with a fucking, basically a Craigslist ad. <laughs> Kijiji. Jeez. Yeah. Isn't that nuts? I mean, awful that it had to happen to Tim and the, w- I don't say it had to happen. They did that to him. Yeah. When he was just trying to sell his car. Yeah. That's it. And he told his wife he'd be right back. And then that was it. He was gone. He vanished, disappeared. But the way that it opened the door to be yeah. able to figure out what in the hell happened to two other people already. I, I mean, it, at least there's that. Yeah. And I, I think it is important because, frankly, if they hadn't been caught, I have no doubt they'd still be going. There would be more people dead. And probably every six months since it happened. That seems to be the magic number. Evil, evil, evil people. Evil. and like. I can't I can't rationalize killing my dad for the sake of killing my dad and then spitting on his grave and saying, what an idiot for pouring his life into this thing that I don't even want. That's just psychopathy. That is just complete dead behind the eyes. No yeah. emotion in it for himself and only himself. And it is a dangerous mix in a world that runs on money to be that man with that kind of money. Yeah. So I love that he got caught. I love that he was held accountable. That I love that his money didn't save him. Yeah. Yeah. I love all of it. And I hope they wrote into everything that like he can't profit from a damn thing. Yeah. That he has like a limit on his commissary that he doesn't have anything good to look forward to. Nothing. No. I don't even want them getting single cigarettes from the guys in the rec yard. Fuck that. Nope. Well, thank you for covering that. 
Yeah, it's a tough one. Uh, if you guys wanted to go see any pictures, faces, places, any stuff that we were talking about, that's always going to be on our Instagram. So you can look that up at about time for true crime pod with periods in between every word. So that's <gasps> A-B-O-U-T period, T-I-M-E period, F-O-R period, T-R-U-E period, C-R-I-M-E period, P-O-D because podcast was too long. You could also DM us like pickies of your pod pets. We'd love We'd that. We'd love them. We'd you love to share them. Tell us like what you thought about this episode. And if you had like a lot of thoughts, which we'd also love to hear, you could email those. But Ali, how would they email that? So if you wanted to email us, you would send that to about time, the number four TC at gmail.com. That's A-B-O-U-T-T-I-M-E, numeric four TC at gmail.com. Send your pod pets, your case recommendations, your feedback. Just say hi. We would like to encourage you and thank you for doing so for uh, yes. downloading and um, sharing and telling a friend and rating and reviewing and all the other words that they say that you're supposed to say, I guess. Yeah. Um. Again, it really does help us. And as two people who love to talk about this shit, it is the next step for us to be able to do it better and it's more. An, it's an attaboy for us. We appreciate it. So thank you. We love any kind of support, moral support, visual support, ideally listening support. Yeah. Um, and we love you guys. So yeah, that's pretty much that. And uh, if I take a look at my watch, that was About, about time, time for True Crime. Bye. Bye. Stay safe.